This is Dr. C, and I'm stoked to welcome you to an episode of Christory the Podcast. When history is told by Christine, the good old days, and even the not-so-good old days, will make you nod your head. I'm glad you made it to the party. Let's do this. Wishing you welcome again to Christory, where history rolls and it's always an adventure, at least the history that we explore here, because we leave the boring stuff in the beaten track to someone else. This is Dr. Christine Contrada, and in the last episode of Christory, we took on the history of true crime, with a collection of Long Island killers, scary enough to prove that history is often more off the chain than fiction. Now we're taking it into New York City, with a witness protection program-worthy podcast, so prepare thyself, because there is a worm in the core of the Big Apple. The history of true crime captures public imagination, especially when it comes to the history of organized crime. And in this podcast, we get up close and personal with the Italian-American mafia. In honor of the occasion, I might have a cat in my lap in this dimly lit office, and I'd like to remind you that when in doubt, leave the gun and take the cannoli. We like to keep things interesting at Christery. And the history of the Mafia is particularly spicy. But why the allure? Why is so much murder and mayhem romanticized? Well, for one, these are well-dressed, family-oriented, omerta, which means the code of honor, obsessed perps. So categorically, they seem different from the killers that we met in the last podcast. But how shall I describe them? Fancy killers with good taste in wine, shoes, and even tracksuits? Well, Hollywood has done a lot to glorify the lot of them. So if you picture these dons in your head, that's probably what you're picturing. Also, they speak to us in the sense that many people are sick of their crappy positions in life and seeing that these mobsters, who many of which were immigrants and the descendants of immigrants, these guys took matters into their own hands to build something better for themselves outside of the system that was keeping them down. These are rags to riches stories, and that's always enticing. Our fascination with the mob is also our general fascination with money and power. The history of organized crime is particularly complicated for Italian Americans because the stereotypes are deeply problematic, but for many, it's a love-hate relationship. I mean, obviously, we're not all in the mob, but when you grow up knowing a guy who knows a guy and the world is that guy's oyster... And the people around that guy get some oysters, too. Well, even as a little kid, that stuff registers. So in today's podcast, we're going to look at the murders of bosses in particular. Now, they all have elements of mystery, and they've all captured public intrigue and imagination. And we discussed that in the context of serial killers in the last podcast. Now, the mafia likes to send a message So many of these murders are out in public view, and it's a brief glimpse into an underground criminal enterprise. The killers usually aren't found, or they end up being killed themselves. The mob clearly has its own parallel system of justice. Now, you might not know these historical deaths, but the fictional deaths in the mob are famous and infamous, mostly because they fill our popular imagination on the small and big screen. 
Now, in Goodfellas, Joe Pesci's character was supposed to get made, but got whacked. And Robert De Niro's character took it out on a phone booth, infamously outside of a diner in Queens. In The Sopranos, Adriana Laserva, Christopher, and oh, I'm sorry, Christopher, spirited fiancé, was forced to rat by the FBI. Now, rats have a target on their neck, and Christopher couldn't do the deed, so other members of the crew had to drag Adriana off into the Pine Barrens in one of the most talked about and frankly horrifying episodes of that much-loved show. Golden Child, Sonny Corleone, in The Godfather was shot stopping at a toll booth on Long Island. If Easy Pass had only existed... And I mention these great fictional hits because, like with most things, history is just as good, if not better. As a wee babe, John Gotti ruled the roost in Howard Beach, Queens. Now, John Gotti was known as the Dapper Don or the Teflon Don. Basically, the man could buy a suit for sure. And crime sucked to him in court worse than a command hook sticks to a cinder block dorm room wall, which is code for not at all. Now, in Gotti's heyday, all of us cousins used to pile in Grandpa's ocean liner-sized Buick clown car style to head down Woodhaven Boulevard to Howard Beach to see all the Christmas lights in the neighborhood. Now, cruising through the life-sized animatronics and the real-life Santas handing out candy canes to any kid who went by, Howard Beach was so lit up that I'm surprised that pilots landing at JFK didn't mistaken it for a runway. And it didn't matter if there was crime in the rest of the city, and that surely soared in the 70s and 80s. Middle Village and Howard Beach were like islands. The OG gangsters had no patience for petty crime in their own backyards. So as a kid... The mob was free candy and being able to play in the street and go to the park by yourself. Now, in reality, it's pretty deadly business. And these days, after decades of damaging convictions, the mafia in New York is a shell of its former self. Now, once Gotti was tossed in jail for life in 1992, it was clear that the reign of the five families in New York was done. Kind of like when the Magna Carta backed the English crown into a corner. Now, occasionally you see a headline on the front page of the New York Post or the Daily News that takes you back to the 80s, and you go, oh wait, what, there are still mobsters? Now, one such example was when Francesco Frankie Boy Cali, boss of the Gambino crime family, was killed. The 53-year-old was shot six times and killed right outside of his home in Tot Hill, Staten Island, in 2019. The general reaction from the public was, wait, there's still a Gambino syndicate? So we're going to take it back to the 20th century and kick it old school with the five families. Now, if you think your family is dysfunctional, I assure you, it is not this dysfunctional. Oh, and don't forget to stir the sauce so it doesn't burn. And here we go. In parallel to our six Long Island killers, we're going to stick to six assassinations. This time we're going to do it in chronological order because that's how historians roll. Now, coming out of the gate, number one is Giuseppe Morello. 
Morello was born in Corleone, Sicily, and his nickname was The Clutch because he had one finger on a deformed right hand that looked like a claw. Now, he and his enforcers had a propensity for leaving bodies in barrels and alleys and waterways around New York City to remind everybody who was in control. His street gang was based in Harlem, and it was the seat of the first crime family in New York, the first boss of bosses. He would eventually go on to found the Genovese crime family. And the mighty do fall. Now, Morello was shot and killed on the street at the very early stages of a mob war with the Brooklyn families in East Harlem in 1930. Now, at number two, we have Albert Anastasia. And before there was Murder, Inc. with Ja Rule frontlining, there was Murder, Inc. controlled by mob hitman from the Gambino crime family, Albert Anastasia. He was known as the Mad Hatter. Now, Anastasia had immigrated to New York from Calabria, Italy in 1919, and he controlled the docks of the city through the Dock Workers Union. He killed his own boss to rise through the ranks of power, and he was sentenced to death for killing a longshoreman. But he got out on a technicality through a retrial. Now, Murder, Inc. was also known as the Brownsville Boys, and they were a syndicate of Jewish and Italian hitmen that operated in the back of a candy store. And he would be killed in a barber chair at the Park Sheridan Hotel in Midtown Manhattan in 1957. When he was shot and in shock, he tried to attack his killers, but he actually went for their reflection in the mirror in the chaos. It might have been orchestrated by another boss. Now, Anastasia had a gambling debt, and he was seen as unstable, and law enforcement was also breathing down his neck, drawing unwanted attention to family business. Now, I'm not sure, but Carlo Gambino most likely had a hand in it, and so did everyone else in the five families, it seems. Now, Gambino had a lot to gain, and he would go on to head the family with Anastasia six feet under at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. You could have bought the barber chair at auction in 2012 for a mere 7000 bucks. And that brings us to number three, who's Joseph Colombo Sr. Now, this head of the Brooklyn Mafia, the Colombo family, was pretty much born into the mob. He founded the Italian-American Civil Rights League, which actually helped Paramount Pictures to start filming The Godfather in New York. Now, Italian-Americans generally were up in arms about this film because of the stereotypes. The mob had its eyebrows raised for a different reason, but Colombo helped them out if they promised that the film didn't mention Cosa Nostra by name, and it didn't. And the film would go on to be one of Hollywood's biggest successes. But Colombo went out like a match. Now, he was shot multiple times in the head at a rally of the Italian-American Civil Rights League right in Columbus Circle in the middle of Manhattan in 1971. His assassin, named Johnson, was considered a lone gunman by the NYPD. The assassin was killed in a square by Colombo's bodyguards, a day late and a dollar short. But no one was charged with either death. And Colombo was actually in a coma and paralyzed. He lived for seven more years before dying of cardiac arrest. 
He was buried in my hood in Middle Village, Queens at St. John's Cemetery. And I'm betting Carlo Gambino was involved, or maybe even Joe Gallo. Speaking of Joe Gallo, he's our number four. Now, he would be murdered in 1972. Crazy Joe, as this Brooklyn-born boy was known, had a tick from a car accident and was diagnosed with schizophrenia. He was an enforcer in the Profaci crime family, starting with managing his father's loan sharking business and shaking down vending machines and jukebox guys. The head of the NYPD detective said that he was a little guy with steel cojones. But I got news for you, the rest of him wasn't made of steel because he was gunned down at Umberto's Clam House in Little Italy where he was celebrating his 43rd birthday. It went down in the heart of Little Italy when there still was a Little Italy. And his bodyguard, Pete the Greek, couldn't save him from a spray of 20 bullets. That case has never been solved. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of revenge killing going on here. So I'm betting that's probably what happened. And that brings us to number five. And Carmine Galeante, who was killed in 1979. Now, Carmine was born in the hood that was tenement housing in Lower Manhattan. He was known as the Cigar because he seemed to always have a cigar hanging out of his mouth. Now, he was diagnosed as being psychopathic in prison, but long before that, his parents knew that something was off. And if you're Gen X or older, your parents probably threatened to send you to reform school at some point. Well, Galeante's parents actually did. So maybe it was that, or maybe it wasn't enough, or maybe it was working in the shop selling artificial flower arrangements and taking orders from crazy old Italian ladies that pushed him over the edge. We'll never know. But prison was a revolving door for Carmine. Now he's on the hit list because of his heading of a large crime family known as the Banano Crime Family. He also had his eye on taking over the Gambino family, which was being led at that time by Castellano. In the summer of 1979, gunmen killed him when he was stuffing his face in Brooklyn at an Italian-American restaurant. He died with a cigar in his mouth, and his bodyguards did nothing and lived. He also was buried in Middle Village. That brings us to number six, Paul Castellano, who died in 1985. Now, Brooklyn-born Castellano dropped out of school when he got to middle school to become a butcher, but he would go on to become a different type of butcher. Now, long-term, he conducted family business from Staten Island, known to wander around his mansion wearing silk dressing gowns paired with velvet slippers, which sounds a lot like me teaching on Zoom during COVID. But this guy's a horse of a different color. And there's a lot of money in Teamsters pouring concrete. But like most of these guys, he had a few shorter than a New York minute. For example, one of his daughter's boyfriends got whacked for calling Castellano Frank Perdue, the chicken guy. And I picture his fury to be like Joe Pesci saying, funny how. But despite this instability, Castellano headed the Gambino crime family until he was killed in December of 1985 at the age of 70 in front of Sparks Steakhouse in Manhattan.
This was semi-automatic weapons under trench coat style. Now, after his murder, Gotti, who was his enemy, was elected boss, and Gotti would be convicted of Castellano's murder in 1992. But did he order it? Was he alone in that? Was he even there? We'll never know. Now, I don't know about you, but despite being able to barely glance at a universe of criminal activity that we actually know very little about, I'm still looking over my shoulder. I also wish that I had a cool nickname right about now and that cemeteries in Queens could talk. Now, I'd like to make the point, of course, that not all mob bosses get murders. Sometimes Mother Nature is the perp. And lucky Luciano was not so lucky at the Naples airport where he died of a heart attack. Now, Time magazine actually lists Luciano as one of the most influential titans of the 20th century. Because he was killed by Mother Nature and not a spray of bullets, Luciano comes across as a survivor, one of the lucky ones. Luciano is also an interesting example of how this connection to New York runs deep and eternal. Now, although he was killed in Italy, his body was brought back to Middle Village, Queens for burial with over 2,000 of his nearest and dearest in attendance. And I passed his granite mausoleum a million times during the pandemic, walking circles around COVID and thinking about days when the five families ruled the roost. Now, how did these guys lose their hold over New York? I mean, overwhelmingly, maybe it's like that wide sage Biggie once said, mo' money, mo' problems. Well, when the punishment is public, it's put on display to make a point. And in mob wars, you put anyone under a murdered boss on high alert. That's the point. It's a power grab to announce that there's a new boss in town. Now, throwing somebody in the East River does not have the same effect as seeing your old boss full of bullets on the cover of a newspaper, and the New York papers ate this stuff up like candy. As with much of human history, dictators, mob or not, eat their own. Like Roman triumvirates, these powerful men worked together as long as it benefited them. Then all bets were off and it became survival of the fittest. And like Roman consuls, these bosses each had loyal armies behind them, lying in wait, ready to erupt into war. To live by the sword is to die by the sword. And a case in point in human history, mob or no mob, really, nobody likes a rat. And I'm talking to you, Sammy the Bull Gravino. Are you listening? So these mob murders are a Polaroid capture, just a snapshot of an underground world that we can only see glimpses of. They're glimpses that we're meant to see. And these crimes remain unsolved or full of holes, even though the deaths were effectively public spectacle. These men were killed by people they knew. So I imagine that their final moments were one of shock, of seeing a person that they thought that they knew turn on a dime. Maybe it's like Tony Soprano described, and it just simply fades to black. So put Journey on the jukebox, pass the onion rings, and don't stop believing. So thanks for coming along for this wild ride, and I'll catch you next time. 